Book Ninth, Chapter Two of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Ninth, Chapter Two. He didn't go home on leaving her. He didn't want to. He walked instead through his narrow ways and his campy with Gothic arches to a small and comparatively sequestered café where he had already more than once found refreshment and comparative repose, together with solutions that consisted mainly and pleasantly of further indecisions. It was a literal fact that those awaiting him there to-night, while he leaned back on his velvet bench with his head against a florid mirror and his eyes not looking further than the fumes of his tobacco, might have been regarded by him as a little less limp than usual. This wasn't because, before getting to his feet again, there was a step he had seen his way to. It was simply because the acceptance of his position took sharper effect from his sense of what he had just had to deal with. When half an hour before, at the palace, he had turned about to Milly on the question of the impossibility so inwardly felt, turned about on the spot and under her eyes, he had acted, by the sudden force of his seeing much further, seeing how little, how not at all, impossibilities mattered. It wasn't a case for pedantry. When people were at her pass, everything was allowed, and her pass was now, as by the sharp click of a spring, just completely his own, to the extent, as he felt, of her deep dependence on him. Anything he should do, or shouldn't, would have close reference to her life, which was thus absolutely in his hands, and ought never to have reference to anything else. It was on the cards for him that he might kill her. That was the way he read the cards as he sat in his customary corner. The fear in this thought made him let everything go, kept him there, actually, all motionless, for three hours on end. He renewed his consumption and smoked more cigarettes than he had ever done in the time. What had come out for him had come out, with this first intensity, as a terror, so that action itself, of any sort, the right as well as the wrong, if the difference even survived, had heard in it a vivid hush, the injunction to keep from that moment intensely still. He thought, in fact, while his vigil lasted of several different ways of his doing so, and the hour might have served him as a lesson in going on tiptoe. What he finally took home, when he ventured to leave the place, was the perceived truth that he might on any other system go straight to destruction. Destruction was represented for him by the idea of his really bringing to a point, on Milly's side, anything whatever. Nothing so brought, he easily argued, but must be in one way or another a catastrophe. He was mixed up in her fate, or her fate, if that should be better, was mixed up in him, so that a single false motion might either way snap the coil. They helped him, it was true, these considerations, to a degree of eventual peace, for what they luminously amounted to was that he was to do nothing, and that fell in after all with the burden laid on him by Kate. He was only not to budge without the girl's leave, not oddly enough at the last, to move without it, whether further or nearer, any more than without Kate's. It was to this his wisdom reduced itself, to the need again simply to be kind. That was the same as being still, as studying to create the minimum of vibration. He felt himself, as he smoked, shut up to a room on the wall of which something precious was too precariously hung. A false step would bring it down, and it must hang as long as possible. He was aware when he walked away again that even Fleet Street wouldn't at this juncture successfully touch him. His manager might wire that he was wanted, but he could easily be deaf to his manager. His money for the idle life might be none too much. Happily, however, Venice was cheap, and it was moreover the queer fact that Milly, in a manner, supported him. The greatest of his expenses really was to walk to the palace to dinner. He didn't want, in short, to give that up, and he should probably be able, he felt, to stay his breath in his hand. He should be able to be still enough through everything. 
He tried that for three weeks, with the sense after a little of not having failed. There had to be a delicate art in it, for he wasn't trying, quite the contrary, to be either distant or dull. That would not have been being nice, which in its own form was the real law. That too might just have produced the vibration he desired to avert, so that he best kept everything in place by not hesitating or fearing, as it were, to let himself go, go in the direction, that is to say, of staying. It depended on where he went, which was what he meant by taking care. When one went on tiptoe, one could turn off for retreat without betraying the manoeuvre. Perfect tact, the necessity for which he had from the first, as we know, happily recognised, was to keep all intercourse in the key of the absolutely settled. It was settled thus, for instance, that they were indissoluble good friends, and settled as well that her being the American girl was, just in time, and for the relation they found themselves concerned in, a boon inappreciable. If, at least, as the days went on, she was to fall short of her prerogative of the great national, the great maidenly ease, if she didn't diviningly and responsively desire and labour to record herself as possessed of it, this wouldn't have been for want of Densher's keeping her, with his idea, well up to it, wouldn't have been in fine for want of his encouragement and reminder. He didn't, perhaps, in so many words, speak to her of the quantity itself as of the thing she was least to intimate— but he talked of it freely in what he flattered himself was an impersonal way, and this held it there before her, since he was careful also to talk pleasantly. It was at once their idea, when all was said, and the most marked of their conveniences. The type was so elastic that it could be stretched to almost anything, and yet not stretched, it kept down, remained normal, remained properly within bounds. And he had, meanwhile, thank goodness, without being too much disconcerted, the sense, for the girl's part of the business, of the queerest conscious compliance, of her doing very much what he wanted, even though without her quite seeing why. She fairly touched this once in saying, "'Oh, yes, you like us to be as we are, because it's a kind of facilitation to you that we don't quite measure. I think one would have to be English to measure it.' And that, too, strangely enough, without prejudice to her good nature." She might have been conceived as doing, that is of being, what he liked, in order perhaps only to judge where it would take them. They really, as it went on, saw each other at the game, she knowing he tried to keep her in tune with his conception, and he knowing she thus knew it. Add that he again knew she knew, and yet that nothing was spoiled by it, and we get a fair impression of the line they found most completely workable. The strangest fact of all for us must be that the success he himself thus promoted was precisely what figured to his gratitude as the something above and beyond him, above and beyond Kate, that made for daily decency. There would scarce have been felicity, certainly too little of the right lubricant, had not the national character so invoked been, not less inscrutably than entirely, in Milly's chords. It made up her unity and was the one thing he could unlimitedly take for granted." He did so then, daily, for twenty days, without deepened fear of the undue vibration that was keeping him watchful. He knew in his nervousness that he was living at best from day to day and from hand to mouth, yet he had succeeded, he believed, in avoiding a mistake. All women had alternatives, and Milly's would doubtless be shaky too, but the national character was firm in her, whether as all of her practically, by this time, or but as a part, the national character that, in a woman still so young, made of the air breathed a virtual non-conductor. It wasn't till a certain occasion when the twenty days had passed that, going to the palace at tea-time, he was met by the information that the Signora Padrona was not receiving. The announcement met him, in the court, on the lips of one of the gondoliers, met him, he thought, with such a conscious eye as the knowledge of his freedoms of access, hitherto conspicuously shown, could scarce fail to beget. Densher had not been at Palazzo Leporelli among the mere receivable, but had taken his place once for all among the involved and included, so that on being so flagrantly braved he recognised after a moment the propriety of a further appeal. 
neither of the two ladies it appeared received and yet pasquale was not prepared to say that either was poco bene he was yet not prepared to say that either was anything and he would have been blank densher mentally noted if the term could ever apply to members of a race in whom vacancy was but a nest of darknesses not a vain surface but a place of withdrawal in which something obscure something always ominous indistinguishably lived he felt afresh indeed at this hour the force of the veto laid within the palace on any mention any cognition of the liabilities of its mistress the state of her health was never confessed to there as a reason how much it might deeply be taken for one was another matter of which he grew fully aware on carrying his question further this appeal was to his friend eugenio whom he immediately sent for with whom for three rich minutes protected from the weather he was confronted in the gallery that led from the water-steps to the court and whom he always called in meditation his friend seeing it was so elegantly presumable he would have put an end to him if he could that produced a relation which required a name of its own, an intimacy of consciousness in truth for each, an intimacy of eye, of ear, of general sensibility, of everything but tongue. It had been, in other words, for the five weeks, far from occult to our young man, that Eugenio took a view of him not less finely formal than essentially vulgar, but which at the same time he couldn't himself raise an eyebrow to prevent. It was all in the air now again, it was as much between them as ever while Eugenio waited on him in the court." The weather from early morning had turned to storm, the first sea-storm of the autumn, and Densher had almost invidiously brought him down the outer staircase, the massive ascent, the great feature of the court, to Milly's piano nobile. This was to pay him, it was the one chance, for all imputations, the imputation in particular that clever, tanto bello, and not rich, the young man from London was, by the obvious way, pressing Miss Thiel's fortune hard. It was to pay him for the further ineffable intimation that a gentleman must take the young lady's most devoted servant, interested scarcely less in the high attraction, for a strangely casual appendage if he counted in such a connection on impunity and prosperity. These interpretations were odious to Densher for the simple reason that they might have been so true of the attitude of an inferior man, and three things alone, accordingly, had kept him from writing himself. One of these was that his critics sought expression only in an impersonality, a positive inhumanity, of politeness. The second was that refinements of expression in a friend's servant were not a thing a visitor could take action on, and the third was the fact that the particular attribution of motive did him, after all, no wrong. It was his own fault if the vulgar view, the view that might have been taken of an inferior man, happened so incorrigibly to fit him. He apparently wasn't so different from inferior men as that came to if therefore in fine eugenio figured to him as my friend because he was conscious of his seeing so much of him what he made him see on the same lines in the course of their present interview was ever so much more densher felt that he marked himself no doubt as insisting by dissatisfaction with the gondolier's answer on the pursuit taken for granted in him and yet felt it only in the augmented the exalted distance that was by this time established between them Eugenio had, of course, reflected that a word to Miss Thiel from such a pair of lips would cost him his place, but he could also bethink himself that, so long as the word never came, and it was, on the basis he had arranged, impossible, he enjoyed the imagination of mounting guard. He had never so mounted guard, Densher could see, as during these minutes in the damp loggia, where the storm-gusts were strong, and there came in fact for our young man, as a result of his presence, a sudden sharp sense that everything had turned to the dismal. Something had happened, he didn't know what, and it wasn't Eugenio who would tell him. What Eugenio told him was that he thought the ladies, as if their liability had been equal, were a little fatigued, just a little little, and without any cause named for it. 
It was one of the signs of what Densher felt in him that, by a profundity, a true deviltry of resource, he always met the latter's Italian with English, and his English with Italian. He now, as usual, slightly smiled at him in the process, but ever so slightly this time, his manner also being attuned, our young man made out, to the thing, whatever it was, that constituted the rupture of peace. This manner, while they stood a long minute facing each other, over all they didn't say, played a part as well in the sudden jar to Densher's protected state. It was a Venice all of evil that had broken out for them alike, so that they were together in their anxiety, if they really could have met on it. A Venice of cold, lashing rain from a low black sky, of wicked wind raging through narrow passes, of general arrest and interruption, with the people engaged in all the water-life huddled, stranded and wageless, bored and cynical, under archways and bridges. Our young man's mute exchange with his friend contained meanwhile such a depth of reference that, had the pressure been but slightly prolonged, they might have reached a point at which they were equally weak. Each had verily something in mind that would have made a hash of mutual suspicion, and in presence of which, as a possibility, they were more united than disjoined. But it was to have been a moment for Densher that nothing could ease off, not even the formal propriety with which his interlocutor finally attended him to the portone and bowed upon his retreat. Nothing had passed about his coming back, and the air had made itself felt as a non-conductor of messages. Densher knew, of course, as he took his way again, that Eugenio's invitation to return was not what he missed, yet he knew at the same time that what had happened to him was part of his punishment. Out in the square, beyond the fondamenta that gave access to the land-gate of the palace, out where the wind was higher, he fairly, with the thought of it, pulled his umbrella closer down. It couldn't be his consciousness, unseen enough by others, the base predicament of having, by a concatenation, just to take such things, such things as the fact that one very acute person in the world, whom he couldn't dispose of as an interested scoundrel, enjoyed an opinion of him that there was no attacking, no disproving, no, what was worst of all, even noticing. One had come to a queer pass when a servant's opinion so mattered. Eugenio's would have mattered even if, as founded on a low vision of appearances, it had been quite wrong. It was the more disagreeable, accordingly, that the vision of appearances was quite right, and yet was scarcely less low. Such it was, at any rate, Densher shook it off with the more impatience that he was independently restless. He had to walk in spite of weather, and he took his course, through crooked ways, to the piazza, where he should have the shelter of the galleries. Here, in the high arcade, half Venice was crowded close, while on the molo, at the limit of the expanse, the old columns of the St. Theodore and of the Lion were the frame of a door wide open to the storm. It was odd for him, as he moved, that it should have made such a difference, if the difference wasn't only that the palace had for the first time failed of a welcome. There was more, but it came from that, that gave the harsh note and broke the spell. The wet and the cold were now to reckon with, and it was to Densher precisely as if he had seen the obliteration, at a stroke, of the margin on a faith in which they were all living. The margin had been his name for it, for the thing that, though it had held out, could bear no shock. The shock in some form had come, and he wandered about it while, threading his way among loungers as vague as himself, he dropped his eyes sightlessly on the rubbish in shops. There were stretches of the gallery paved with squares of red marble, greasy now with the salt spray, and the whole place in its huge elegance, the grace of its conception and the beauty of its detail, was more than ever like a great drawing-room, the drawing-room of Europe, profaned and bewildered by some reverse of fortune. He brushed shoulders with brown men whose hats askew, and the loose sleeves of whose pendant jackets made them resemble melancholy maskers. The tables and chairs that overflowed from the cafés were gathered, still with a pretense of service, into the arcade, and here and there a spectacled German, with his coat-collar up, partook publicly of food and philosophy. 
These were impressions for Densher too, but he had made the whole circuit thrice before he stopped short, in front of Florian's, with the force of his sharpest. His eye had caught a face within the café, he had spotted an acquaintance behind the glass. The person he had thus paused long enough to look at twice was seated, well within range, at a small table on which a tumbler, half-emptied and evidently neglected, still remained. And though he had on his knee, as he leaned back, a copy of a French newspaper, the heading of the Figaro was visible, he stared straight before him at the little opposite Rococo wall. Densher had him for a minute in profile, had him for a time during which his identity produced, however quickly, all the effect of establishing connections, connections startling and direct, and then, as if it were the one thing more needed, seized the look, determined by a turn of the head, that might have been a prompt result of the sense of being noticed. This wider view showed him all Lord Mark. Lord Mark has encountered several weeks before the day of the first visit of each to Palazzo Leporelli. For it had been all Lord Mark that was going out on that occasion as he came in. He had felt it in the hall at the time, and he was accordingly the less at a loss to recognise in a few seconds, as renewed meeting brought it to the surface, the same potential quantity. It was a matter, the whole passage, it could only be, but of a few seconds, for as he might neither stand there to stare, nor on the other hand make any advance from it, he had presently resumed his walk, this time to another pace. It had been for all the world, during his pause, as if he had caught his answer to the riddle of the day. Lord Mark had simply faced him, as he had faced him, not placed by him, not at first, as one of the damp shuffling crowd. Recognition, though hanging fire, had then clearly come, yet no light of salutation had been struck from these certainties. Acquaintance between them was scant enough for neither to take it up. That neither had done so was not, however, what now mattered, but that the gentleman at Florian's should be in the place at all. He couldn't have been in it long. Densher, as inevitably a haunter of the great meeting-ground, would in that case have seen him before. He paid short visits, he was on the wing, the question for him even as he sat there was of his train or of his boat. He had come back for something, as a sequel to his earlier visit, and whatever he had come back for it had had time to be done. He might have arrived but last night, or that morning, he had already made the difference. It was a great thing for Densher to get this answer. He held it close, he hugged it, quite leaned on it as he continued to circulate. It kept him going and going, it made him no less restless. But it explained, and that was much, for with explanations he might somehow deal. The vice in the air otherwise was too much like the breath of fate. The weather had changed, the rain was ugly, the wind wicked, the sea impossible, because of Lord Mark. It was because of him, a fortiori, that the palace was closed. Densher went round again twice. He found the visitor each time as he had found him first. Once, that is, he was staring before him, the next time he was looking over his Figaro, which he had opened out. Densher didn't again stop, but left him apparently unconscious of his passage, on another repetition of which Lord Mark had disappeared. He had spent but the day, he would be off that night, he had now gone to his hotel for arrangements. These things were as plain to Densher as if he had had them in words. The obscure had cleared for him, if cleared it was, there was something he didn't see, the great thing, but he saw so round it, and so close to it, that this was almost as good. He had been looking at a man who had done what he had come for, and for whom, as done, it temporarily sufficed. The man had come again to see Milly, and Milly had received him. His visit would have taken place just before, or just after luncheon, and it was the reason why he himself had found her door shut. He said to himself that evening, he still said even on the morrow, that he only wanted a reason, and that with this perception of one he could now mind, as he called it, his business. His business, he had settled, as we know, was to keep thoroughly still, and he asked himself why it should prevent this that he could feel, in connection with the crisis, so remarkably blameless. He gave the appearances before him all the benefit of being critical, so that if blame were to accrue, he shouldn't feel he had dodged it. 
but it wasn't a bit he who that day had touched her, and if she was upset it wasn't a bit his act. The ability so to think about it amounted for Densher during several hours to a kind of exhilaration. The exhilaration was heightened fairly besides by the visible conditions, sharp, striking, ugly to him, of Lord Mark's return. His constant view of it, for all the next hours, of which there were many, was as a demonstration on the face of it sinister even to his own actual ignorance. He didn't need, for seeing it as evil, seeing it as, to a certainty in a high degree nasty, to know more about it than he had so easily and so wonderfully picked up. You couldn't drop on the poor girl that way without, by the fact, being brutal. Such a visit was a descent, an invasion, an aggression, constituting precisely one or other of the stupid shocks he himself had so decently sought to spare her. Densher had indeed drifted by the next morning to the reflection, which he positively, with occasion, might have brought straight out, that the only delicate and honourable way of treating a person in such a state was to treat her as he, Merton Densher, did. With time, actually, for the impression, but deepened, this sense of the contrast to the advantage of Merton Densher became a sense of relief, and that in turn a sense of escape. It was for all the world, and he drew a long breath on it, as if a special danger for him had passed. Lord Mark had, without in the least intending such a service, got it straight out of the way. It was he, the brute, who had stumbled into just the wrong inspiration, and who had therefore produced, for the very person he had wished to hurt, an impunity that was comparative innocence, that was almost like purification. The person he had wished to hurt could only be the person so unaccountably hanging about. To keep still, meanwhile, was for this person more comprehensively to keep it all up, and to keep it all up was, if that seemed on consideration best, not, for the day or two, to go back to the palace. The day or two passed, stretched to three days, and with the effect, extraordinarily, that Densher felt himself in the course of them washed but the more clean. Some sign would come if his return should have the better effect, and he was at all events, in absence, without the particular scruple. It wouldn't have been meant for him by either of the women that he was to come back but to face Eugenio. That was impossible, the being again denied, for it made him practically answerable, and answerable was what he wasn't. There was no neglect either in absence, inasmuch as, from the moment he didn't get in, the one message he could send up would be some hope on the score of health. Since accordingly that sort of expression was definitely forbidden him, he had only to wait, which he was actually helped to do by his feeling with the lapse of each day more and more wound up to it. The days in themselves were anything but sweet, the wind and the weather lasted, the fireless cold hinted at worse, the broken charm of the world about was broken into smaller pieces. He walked up and down his rooms and listened to the wind, listened also to the tinkles of bells, and watched for some servant of the palace. He might get a note, but the note never came. There were hours when he stayed at home not to miss it. When he wasn't at home he was in circulation again, as he had been at the hour of his seeing Lord Mark. He strolled about the square with the herd of refugees, he raked the approaches and the cafés on the chance the brute, as he now regularly imagined him, might be still there. He could only be there, he knew, to be received afresh, and that, one had but to think of it, would be indeed stiff. He had gone, however, it was proved, though Densher's care for the question either way only added to what was most acrid in the taste of his present ordeal. It all came round to what he was doing for Milly, spending days that neither relief nor escape could purge of a smack of the abject. What was it but abject for a man of his parts to be reduced to such pastimes? What was it but sordid for him, shuffling about in the rain, to have to peep into shops and to consider possible meetings? What was it but odious to find himself wondering what, as between him and another man, a possible meeting would produce? There recurred moments when, in spite of everything, he felt no straighter than another man. And yet even on the third day, when still nothing had come, he more than ever knew that he wouldn't have budged for the world. 
He thought of the two women in their silence at last, he at all events thought of Milly, as probably for her reasons now intensely wishing him to go. The cold breath of her reasons was, with everything else, in the air, but he didn't care for them any more than for her wish itself, and he would stay in spite of her, stay in spite of odium, stay in spite, perhaps, of some final experience that would be, for the pain of it all, but unbearable. That would be his one way, purified though he was, to mark his virtue beyond any mistake. It would be accepting the disagreeable, and the disagreeable would be a proof, a proof of his not having stayed for the thing, the agreeable, as it were, that Kate had named. The thing Kate had named was not to have been the odium of staying in spite of hints. It was part of the odium as actual, too, that Kate was, for her comfort, just now well aloof. These were the first hours since her flight in which his sense of what she had done for him on the eve of that event was to incur a qualification. It was strange, it was perhaps base, to be thinking such things so soon, but one of the intimations of his solitude was that she had provided for herself. She was out of it all, by her act, as much as he was in it and this difference grew positively as his own intensity increased. She had said in their last sharp snatch of talk, sharp though thickly muffled, and with every word in it final and deep, unlike even the deepest words they had ever yet spoken, "'Letters? Never! Now! Think of it! Impossible!' So that as he had sufficiently caught her sense, into which he read, all the same, a strange inconsequence, they had practically wrapped their understanding in the breach of their correspondence. He had, moreover, on losing her, done justice to her law of silence, for there was doubtless a finer delicacy in his not writing to her than in his writing as he must have written, had he spoken of themselves. That would have been a turbid strain, and her idea had been to be noble, which in a degree was a manner. Only it left her, for the pinch, comparatively at ease, and it left him, in the conditions, peculiarly alone. He was alone, that is, till, on the afternoon of his third day, in gathering dusk and renewed rain, with his shabby rooms looking doubtless, in their confirmed dreariness, for the mere eyes of others, at their worst, the grinning padrona threw open the door and introduced Mrs. Stringham. That made at a bound a difference, especially when he saw that his visitor was weighted. It appeared part of her weight that she was in a wet waterproof, that she allowed her umbrella to be taken from her by the good woman without consciousness or care, and that her face, under her veil, richly rosy with the driving wind, was, and the veil too, as splashed as if the rain were her tears. End of Book Ninth, Chapter Two